If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Phyllis, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 176 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. Great to have you back for another conversation. Sure to go into the record books as classic. I have with me today one of the funniest people in the world. Comedian Wendy Liebman is joining me today. Wendy has appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, The Larry Sanders Show on HBO, Dr. Katz, Jimmy Kimmel, Late Night with David Letterman. The list goes on and on. You're going to love my conversation with Wendy Liebman. She's amazing. And that's coming up in just a few seconds. And in these few seconds, I want to remind you of a few recent episodes of the podcast. Episode 174 with Oscar winner George Chakiris. Bernardo from West Side Story. We dive deep into his career and West Side Story. Episode 175 with Pat Jankowitz, author of You Wouldn't Like Me When I'm Angry, an incredible Hulk companion, a deep dive into the Bill Bixby Lou Ferrigno Incredible Hulk TV series. An amazing conversation. If you love deep dives, last week was a treasure trove for you, I suppose. All right, well, more treasure awaits. With this episode, episode 176, comedian Wendy Liebman. Enjoy. All right, everyone, I'd like to introduce you to my next guest. You may have seen her on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, The Larry Sanders Show, Dr. Katz, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, etc., etc. One of the funniest people in the world, one of my favorite comics. So excited to have on the show, Wendy Liebman. Well, oh, that was the best intro. Thank I'm going to bronze that intro. I love that intro. Oh, <laughs> well, thanks. It's uh, I'm so excited to talk to you. I like, honestly, you were like one of my favorite comedians of all time. Like I just everything. I just boom. So That's I amazing. that thank you so much. I mean, like we've both been doing this for a long time, but I feel like I'm just getting my voice now. I love your voice back then. I'm sure you're making it better. That's what that's what comedians do. I just have always been fascinated and just I mean, the structure of your jokes is just hilarious. It relies on a masterful timing. And that to me is what I find so amazing and fascinating while I'm laughing and doing that. It's just that manipulation of time and space is really what a lot of people aren't great at. And you're just the master. And you see a lot of people trying to do that. And, you know, I think maybe I try to do it too. And so, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's where I think you're super popular. I don't even know how to answer. I mean, respond to that, except that one time I was getting a massage and I realized that the times that she didn't have her hands on me, it was the anticipation of this is going to be great because everything she had done before was great. So 
part of the experience was the waiting. I don't know if that makes any sense. So I guess my timing is, I don't know. I need a massage. (laughs) (laughs) I got it. It's hard to explain, you know, just to put it in words, because it's, it's probably just, is it just how you are? I mean, was it how you would kind of talk? I mean, I'm sure you honed it on for the stage and stuff like that. But was that how just always your brain kind of worked? Like just that little hidden boom? I think it's all just like trial and error and not wanting to be on stage in limbo. So using the silence and also what you hear, because the audience definitely tells you everything that you need to adjust yourself accordingly. And yeah, every time I go on stage, it's like an experiment. But I haven't been on stage a lot. I've done a lot of Zoom stand-up shows, which is so... I love it, actually, because I have the teleprompter on top. Like, I have my jokes written at the top, so I don't have to, like, freak out that I'm going to forget what I'm going to say now that I'm my age. But yeah, I haven't been on stage because of Kofefi. I mean, COVID. (laughs) And before that, a year and a half before that, I had been hit by a car. I was recovering, so I wasn't doing stand-up because I had a lot of broken bones. I read about that. That is that was horrible. But that was like your second big accident, right? I mean, don't hang out with me. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy and cars. It's like uh, <laughs> it's like Buddy don't. Holly. Well, it's like Buddy Holly and planes. Planes, yeah. The first time I was in a car and my husband and I were hit by a drunk driver going 92 and there were six cars waiting at a light and it was like he was the bowling ball and he went like he, yeah, he hit where you do a strike. And the woman in the car next to us died. And so that was like, you know, 10 feet from death. And that was in 2013. And what that did for me was made me go, I have to get back out there because I've been taking some time off to raise my stepchildren. Still performing, but just not as much as I had been. Yeah, so I went back out there again. And But then in 2018, I was hit by a car while I was walking across the street. That took a while to heal. But I'm factory reset now. Yeah, you look... <laughs> You look ready to, to walk. No, you look ready to walk. <laughs> I know. Sorry about the hat. It's just my hair was just No, not, no, no. I meant like walk from this interview. That's no, what I No, this is I <laughs> I work too hard. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, not to make you relive it, but I mean, were were you conscious or did you just wake up and you're like, someone's like, oh, by the way, you were in an accident? Well, no, I was conscious the whole time. And a really nice Samaritan came to my rescue and he had been walking toward me. I don't I don't need you to relive it or live it, but he was walking toward me. And he I do remember saying to him when he came to comfort me, we had the light. Right. And he was like, you had the light like hit you. I'm not allowed to say. Right, right. <laughs> Wait, but what was I going to say? Oh, but then I passed out. Oh, I know. I passed out in the ambulance after the guy was like, how old are you? I said, I'm 57. He goes, I have a 57 year old, approximately 140 pounds. And I'm like, I weigh 100. <laughs> and then I passed out. But then I woke up and I knew I wasn't at home because I could hear somebody vacuuming. <laughs> The beautiful thing about stand-up <laughs> comedians, it's turned the, a tragedy into a hilarious No, movie. but honestly, 
I was never upset. I was taking a little oxycodone and I do understand the opioid crisis firsthand. I mean, I never got into crisis, but I understand how addictive that was. So I'm just saying that as a real thing. But I, somebody explained to me that my bones had to knit themselves back together. Like that's how bone heals. And I felt like I was doing that with everything in my life. Like I just had time to feel like think and watch me tv i sorry to make you relive some of that it was just for some reason it's like my greatest nightmare but for some reason i had to hear it i just uh <laughs> is that your greatest nightmare i just well just to be able to like have something like traumatic happen and and be aware well i do remember feeling like because i stepped out on the curb and i do remember feeling this car up against my body and i felt myself turning and i remember thinking oh this is what it's like to be hit by a car and then my next thought was i don't have time for this who's, who's <laughs> I got have life to live. uh so as i was docking your uh, timelines and stuff like that so was this the recovery from this is this what led you on the path then to america's got talent was this sort of like that was the first act that was the oh, that was drive. the first accident yeah because this accident happened 2018 and then i was pretty much recovered by the end of 2019 and then covid hit so i had only performed twice and okay now the timeline's making more sense to me. Yeah. okay so you got okay the drunk driver hits you you go on america's got talent and then the universe says mm. <laughs> well you know i did realize that the universe you have to ask the universe for what you need jeff like i probably said i need a break and <laughs> i need to be more specific right the universe was a little too taking wendy a little too literal <laughs> seriously literal what was it like did you know howie mandel from your comedy? I did know Howie Mandel. My first and only writing job was when I moved out to California from Boston. And probably around 1993, Howie had a summer variety show. I remember Gilbert Gottfried was on it and Robert Goulet. <laughs> like it really was a variety show and he had like a, an elephant. And anyway, I was hired to write some sketches. And so I did know him. So he had to declare that he knew me and he couldn't vote. So yeah, it was fair. It was all fair. And I had asked him, I said, you know, should I do this? And he's like, why not? It's exposure. It's, you know, you just get out there. I had had some responses were like, you've already been on The Tonight Show. Why are you doing this? And I thought the producers didn't care. There are people on that show who already had like major recording contracts. And so I don't regret anything. No, I think it was it's a great move because that show probably is I think the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, if someone looks on paper, goes, oh, that's the Mecca. But the reality is America's Got Talent probably had a huge multiple of people beyond who actually would have seen the Tonight Show, right? So yeah. it's in terms of exposure. Yeah, and I'm always game. And then Howie brought you back. So that was cool. Well, uh, actually, it was Howard. Who Howard Stern. Sorry, I forgot there were two Howards. This though. is show business. This is show business. I never met him. I'm sorry, I missed what you were saying because I was futzing with my hair. No, I was saying Howard Stern brought you back. So, and then uh, it's it's it's, it's intimidating me in front of Howard Stern. I would. I know you're a professional. You've done it a million times, but it seems like that would still be. Uh, no, I mean. I love Howard Stern so much and I never got to meet him. Like they made it seem like I knew him and he called me back, but that was just like from a distance. So 
I was disappointed that I didn't get to meet him and shake his hand because I, I think he's great and hilarious. Yeah, well, he loved you. That was 2014. So why hasn't he had you on his radio show then or anything? I mean, that's, I'm not in that clique. But uh, you should be. He, he knows you now. Anyway, all right, let's, his loss. You think I'd be doing your show now if I was? <laughs> no, thank, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, I know, I know. Sorry to interrupt, but I got fed up and walked out of the interview. I'm kidding, of course. Just want to take a quick break. Thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. And now we're back to my amazing conversation with Wendy Liebman. We're going to dive into the origin of her path to comedy. And we're back. When did you realize you were hilarious and this was going to be your path in life? I know you took a class, you were taking classes, you know, stuff like that. I know, but my mother said I was always funny when I was little. Like my lemonade stand had a two drink minimum. <laughs> and no, I, I don't think I was. Okay. So when I was like seven or eight after Thanksgiving, I decided I wanted to make everybody laugh. So I put on like a tutu, a skew and... I remember pushing one of my socks down, thinking that asymmetry would get the laugh. And I have a picture of it, which I can send you. That's hilarious. And I did get a laugh, but it wasn't until like, I was very serious all through high school, but I did musical theater. I was Eliza and My Fair Lady. That was truly my, the highlight of my acting career when I was 16. And then I went to college and I got really serious and I studied philosophy and I was going to be a therapist. And, but I started getting funny in my senior year as a defense mechanism. I think it was, I think I was so I was so lost. And yeah, so I was doing psych research after college. And I took the mail in from the wrong apartment building. I lived in a duplex. Like it was a house and we were on the top floor. And I took it in from the bottom floor. And in it was a course catalog for the Cambridge Center for Adult Education, which is like the learning annex or any adult ed school. And it said how to be a stand-up comedian. The real story is at first I took an acting class and then the teacher quit mid-class, like at the break. And then the school said, well, take another class. So I kept reading the catalog and I see how to be a stand-up comedian. And it was like the angels were singing. Like I heard, ah, ah, and I thought, that's a class. That's crazy. And yeah, I took that class. I don't know if you can teach somebody exactly to be funny, but I think learning is all about just focusing, focusing on something. And so it was basically a group of people who got together and drank beer and tried jokes on each other. But, you know, it just made me, I knew I sucked for a long time, but I just knew that I should do this. That's fascinating. I agree with you. I think the class gives you structure, just like anything. Here's how you would write a book or here's how you do this. You still have to have it in you to be able to to execute it, the greatness. But we talked about the universe, but it's just interesting, right? So you had the wrong male mail comes to your house and then you picked the wrong class and then the universe self-corrected and got you I into totally that. I totally believe in that. Well, I believe in inevitability. Yeah. Right? What, well, you can call it the universe, but whatever is at play. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe the guy just quit and that was the only thing. <laughs> he quit in the middle of the class. 
I mean, just like, isn't it fascinating to think like, I'm sure eventually your path would have found its way, but what if you hadn't quit? I know. What if I had taken the right mail? What if I had a better glasses on yeah. and I could have seen that it was for apartment one? <laughs> so much. You know, what if my downstairs neighbor became a stand up comedian? <laughs> Right. Well, you were an actress getting your Academy Award. <laughs> oh, no. You never know. All this, all this. So. Oh. All right. So you're from New York, but Boston comic. Yes. People think I'm from Boston, but I just started comedy there. So I was born there, too, in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. I heard once you say that Brian Kiley is one of your favorite comedians. The best. He is. Okay. So I used to tag along with my teacher of the class, whose name is Ron Lynch. And he has since been on the Sarah Silverman program. And he's in Bob's Burgers. And he's a great comedian guy. He was my mentor, my mother. He was just so caring. And I I used to go on, on trips with him to his gigs. And he was in a team called Bob and Ron. And one of the gigs was at the Naughty Pine, which was like this restaurant where you pretty much performed on the tabletop. <laughs> it was like a tabletop on level with everybody's food. It was so bizarre. I'd like to go back now, like you go back to elementary school and see how different it is. Sure, right, right. Memory, Your memory but, versus, yeah. But the opening act was Brian Kiley and... I think he told me later, they told him to do 20 minutes and he only had like 12. But anyway, I just remember falling in love with his sense of humor that night. And he has continued to entertain me. And I just love, I love him. I love his his jokes. And he's written two books, two novels. And I'm not a big reader, but I loved, love, love, love his novels. I'll have to check out his novels. I, we, oh, I my have, God. Oh, yeah. Maybe yeah. Kevin. It's his latest one is called Maybe Kevin. Check that out. I had Brian on uh, on the podcast. He was fun to talk to. Very cool. All right. So as I understand it, you win a, a Johnny Walker improv contest at the improv, right? And you end up on this night show. Or then that well, actually, I won it in Boston. Okay. Came out here. I didn't win it here, but I did get to go on the Tonight Show. So I feel like that was good enough. Yeah, that was surreal. Jim McCauley, who was the talent booker, was at the show at the Improv the night that all the comedians from all over the country came after they were selected in their areas. It was really Bud Friedman who owns the Improv or co-owned it. His wife, Alex Friedman, who said, she's funny. And so that's why he brought me out here. And the guy from The Tonight Show, Jim McCauley, was backstage and he said, how come we haven't seen you before? And I'm like, I had never been to California before. He said, would you like to do the show? I'm like, all right. (laughs) So he booked me a week later. So in the meantime, I went back to Boston, did my day job. And then I did The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. How long were you doing comedy at this point? Six years. Six years. Okay. So it wasn't like six months, like somebody accused me of once. I was just about to accuse you of that. No, I'm just No, no, because (laughs) I had put in my time. Like I would go my day job. I was an administrative assistant at a college at this point. And then every night I would go either to Connecticut, Rhode Island, Vermont, New Hampshire, or someplace in Western Massachusetts, or stay in town in Boston, do one or two or three gigs and just do it every day. And I really... There's nothing to replace experience in stand-up comedy. That is the truth. How did you prepare for The Tonight Show? You know what? I don't even know. I mean, I'm grateful for it, but um, 
Okay, so how did I prepare? I probably only had four and a half minutes of real material at the time. But um, I think they went through different versions of a set that I presented to them. And so I did the show. I felt really good about it. And then Johnny Carson went like that to me. But the audience at home didn't see it. So... I, was right. so- I watched the clip. Okay, so I've heard you talk about this. So that gets cut off on the clip, right? Or like they cut away. I mean, this okay. means everything, right? Yeah. Or if he calls you over. I was sad about it. So I was in my dressing room and apparently he heard that I was sad about it. Johnny Carson. And Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon came to my dressing room. And I... I had grown up watching him and here he was standing in front of me. It was surreal. I feel like I left the room and went into the next room because I don't remember. I just feel like the whole thing was a holograph. That's how I've described it before. I do remember both Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon were really tall. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I remember. I haven't met him, so I don't know. But I know. But... uh... (laughs) You have done the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson one more time than I have. <laughs> I was I was like wondering, I was like, why didn't Wendy go back on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? And then I when I looked at the numbers or the years, like you got on at the tail end of Johnny on the Tonight Show. Yes. And, you know, if they wanted to bring me back, they could have if I had another five minutes that I liked because they've brought people back right away like Stephen Wright he's my other favorite comedian when I first saw Stephen Wright on the Tonight Show watching him in college on my little black and white tv set I thought this is the funniest thing I've ever seen and then I was flying home from Boston to New York and I see him get on the plane but I couldn't I didn't remember exactly how I knew him and I thought oh that's Art Garfunkel <laughs> like even right they kind of look alike so I was going to say something to him as he got off the plane and I never saw him get off the plane like I waited for him and I don't know where he went <laughs> like that was so Stephen Wright but yeah they brought him back like right away and Roseanne too I think so they could have brought me back but well, they should have um, brought you back so I love Stephen Wright also he is hilarious Another Boston comic. Brain Tree or something. Yeah. yeah. He performed at the Ding Ho, which was a little Chinese restaurant that they stopped doing it right when I started doing comedy. So I missed that, but I, I've heard all the stories about it. I think Brian talks a little bit about that. I remember him mentioning that. You don't yeah, forget well, when I someone just, says Ding Ho, you don't forget. I just saw, yeah, I just saw gray hair. Hold on. All good. I'm a prop <laughs> comic now. <laughs> It's Wendy Top. All right. So another huge talk show appearance, Larry Sanders show. I rewatched this yesterday. (laughs) It was like the guy was cheating on his wife in a hotel room and he saw me on TV doing jokes about marriage or something. Yeah. um, Tambor's character um, is uh, trying to pay a prostitute to give him a hand job. He had just gotten divorced or was separating and was going through an emotional spiral. And then uh, you were on. Yeah, you were doing the. uh, (laughs) That was funny, though. Funny. Um, I love that show. That was one of my I love that show. And Gary Shandling was a fan. And that's why he put me on the show. He put a few female comedians on that show. He was very supportive. Carol Siskin and, of course, Janine Garofalo. She was a regular on that show. She was great. Yeah, but she- I love that show. And I love Gary. So to be part of that. Surreal. Pinch me. So this is what it's like to have been on Larry Sanders show. 
Very cool. All right. And then let's see here. I got, you won an American Comedy Award in 1997 for Female Stand-Up Comedian of the Year. Craig Shoemaker won male. Craig's been on the show. I've, I've hung out with him when he was in town last time. He's a great guy. Great. So, I just did his podcast. I know. That's how I realized it was. <laughs> I it. I'm like, oh, he's like, because I remember he was talking about how did it go for you when you won that award? Like, well, how did it change your life in terms of um, the impact it had uh, either getting work or in the industry or how other people saw you? I had been nominated before, maybe once or twice, and, you know, obviously didn't win. So it just felt like a relief. And I think everything you do in life is cumulative. So it didn't change anything overnight in the same way Carson didn't change anything overnight. But they're all, it's all cumulative. It's like, this is my suitcase of experiences and good for my resume. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was watching a clip on your website. You were on the Roseanne show. So Roseanne Barr, she mentioned she was the one that actually presented the American Comedy Award to you. And Lily Tomlin. And Lily Tomlin? Roseanne didn't mention that. Oh. (laughs) She didn't say me with uh, myself with Lily Tomlin. So did you get to meet Gregory Hines? I saw that on your clip because you had the whole episode. Gregory Hines was on the same episode as you. Got to meet him two other times, not that time, but I got to open for him twice on the road. And there, I haven't met a nicer celebrity than Gregory Hines. He was just so generous of spirit. And at the end of his show, he brought all the kids on stage to tap dance with him and me. And not really. (laughs) (laughs) I I was like, oh, that would have been awesome. I I think at one point I thought I'm going to go out there and like do a um, Fanny Bryce thing. But it was a moment for the kids. So, yes, I have. I did get to meet him. When you were on the Roseanne show. So there were two things. One, I, I had a question. When you're doing an interview and you're doing a lot of your jokes, like I'm assuming Roseanne is aware that you're going to be kind of landing some of these. Is it difficult to do that for you? I mean, I mean, because the timing, I, it's sometimes I've, I was watching it. Sometimes I was like, I don't think Roseanne's realizing she's doing, you know, is waiting and giving Wendy a time for that punchline. <laughs> she could try. I don't remember that show. I mean, I remember being on the show and I remember okay. her like some kind of like bombarding me with trying to set me up with somebody. That was my next question. <laughs> she found a Jewish boy, nice Jewish boy on the set and was trying to set you up. <laughs> I think I was already with somebody. And so it was just so awkward. So, but I didn't want to talk about my relationship. So that's anyway, as I said earlier, I'm still finding my voice. So back then I might, I might not have known to listen to her. I find it easier now to say everything I want to say by being more connected with the person that I'm talking to. Hopefully you feel that way. Yes. Yes. I feel a hundred percent connected to you right now. And I hope you're feeling it too, but we got to take a quick break for our sponsors. And we're back with my amazing conversation with Wendy Liebman. About to dive into her late night performances with Letterman and more. And we're back. I know you did the Letterman show like a, a million times. Is there like a like a home club? Is there like a home late night show where like, meaning like where you feel the most comfortable? You know, like you go on Letterman, you're like, because I watched this whole super clip of you. <laughs> On Letterman and now uh, appearance after appearance after appearance. Really? It's like, yeah, I'll send it. I'll find it. I'll send okay. it. To you. Yeah, I would have gone on any of the shows. <laughs> <laughs> were there I mean, some that were more 
easier or just felt easier to like do the comedy like you know i you know like you go you do comedy certain places it's just you're just at home and you can just you know you just crush no matter what and then some places just feels a little different i love being on i was on jimmy fallon before he had the tonight show he had the late show and that audience was just they were like the audience at a club called the Ice House, where it feels like it's a studio audience and they laugh in all the right places. And But actually, it was Stephen Wright who told me before I did The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Did I mention that I did The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? It came up. I happened to meet Stephen Wright with Ron Lynch. They were very good friends or are or our friends. And I said, I'm doing the Tonight Show. And do you have any advice? And he said, perform for the people in the audience. Like, don't think about the people at home, because you just have to make these people laugh. Oh, that's great advice. Yeah. Because then it probably just translates, translates out. So, oh, your husband, Jeffrey Sherman, his father, uncle the sherman brothers they they wrote all these disney i just happened to stumble on this i, I thought it was uh quite interesting and you you've even been in a, a documentary about it but they uh they wrote it's a small small world and so i, I thought that was uh i know well my husband is the funniest person i know and he has given me so many jokes and sometimes i just write stuff down in the middle of the night that he you know, when he sleep talks, but he is the funniest person I know, but is so shy. And so he never wants to do stand up comedy. Although every once in a while, he's like, maybe I'll do five minutes. And that never works out. I mean, he's never done it. He was a producer and writer on a show called Boy Meets World. Yeah, I've heard of that. And he produced my document, my stand up special, Taller on TV that we did for Showtime. And he also did the documentary about his father and uncle, the Sherman brothers, called The Boys, because that's what Walt Disney used to call them, The Boys. And it's Richard and Robert Sherman. And the story is they wrote all this music together, like Mary Poppins and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And they wrote, as you said, Small Worlds and You're 16, You're Beautiful in Your Mind. And they wrote for Annette Funicello and they wrote movies and and yet you don't know them, but you know their music. So Jeff and his cousin did a documentary and it showed how they needed each other to work, but didn't always get along. And it was really the conflict, their conflict that gave rise to all of their beautiful art. So yes, my husband inspired the song spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down because he came home from school one day and his dad said what did you do and he said they gave us the polio vaccine and he goes they let you give you let them give you a shot and he said no they put the medicine on a sugar cube and they put that on a spoon and then we just ate sugar that is- so he has a little claim to fame my husband that's pretty cool that's really cool actually so in the moving saving mr banks the tom hanks movie then, which is about making of Mary Poppins. Now that I'm thinking about it, the Sherman brothers, they were portrayed yes. in that movie, right? Yes. So Jason Schwartzman played my uncle-in-law, Richard, and BJ Novak. Well, this is even weird. And this is how small the world is, actually. BJ's dad was one of 
Jonathan Katz's best friend and included jokes from the Boston comedians, Brian Kiley, myself, and Jonathan in this book he wrote about stand-up comedy and humor. So that was BJ's dad. BJ probably wasn't even five at the time. So it's so weird that then he went on to play my father-in-law in a movie. Wow. I know. That is a small world. It's a small world after all. Don't. Don't sing it. <laughs> you don't want to ruin this. <laughs> you wrote the, the, the greatest earworm song of all time. Well, it's the most played song. Oh, yeah. I believe that. It's nonstop at, at Disney World. Yeah playing right now to many many all right so that was pre- that's pretty cool and then uh the aristocrats you uh <laughs> made quite a splash in that i loved your joke in that you went a completely different way with it which was very unique you don't want to ruin it for anybody no no i don't even i don't want to get this show censored either. <laughs> oh but i didn't want to um i didn't want to do it the other way like i really didn't like the edict so i just made up my own no, it's hilarious. No, you will, everyone will have to go watch the movie. <laughs> well, they were worried because they heard me do it. Like when they came to film me, they were like, I don't think she knows what the joke is. <laughs> and then I said the punchline. They were like, ah. ah. Yeah, so you bring Wendy Liebman to the table, you're going to get something creative. All right. <laughs> Too funny. You're funny and you have perfect teeth. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thanks. Not perfect, but stop shucks. Okay. Oh, Bob Hope. You met Bob Hope? I did meet Bob Hope. I got to open for him in Indianapolis once in front of 500 people outside. And he was so sweet. And, you know, you you hear this sometimes where there's a performer and it's not until they get on stage that they come alive. And you've seen it with Tony Bennett recently that he just comes alive on stage. And I think Bob Hope was at that point where he was not too sure what was going on until he got on stage. And then he was like, Bob Hope. I was also on his variety show. And that's where I met Phyllis Diller. And I got to tell Phyllis that when I was like 11, this is in some of a lot of like the um, press that I've done because it's my favorite story about comedy. When I was 11, I heard her on Mike Douglas or Merv Griffin, and she was saying, you have to make the audience laugh. And then just when they think that they're done, you have to hit them again. And I thought, I'm like 11. I'm like, I know what you mean, lady. So I feel like I was, my comedy was informed by Phyllis. She made me understand how I thought even at that age. And Anyway, so I got to be on the Bob Hope show. And then I have since, in my life now, met one of his head writers, Gene Parrott, because he and his daughter, Linda Parrott, came to one of my shows. And I started talking to them from the audience, and I realized who they were, and then we became acquainted afterwards. And I've spent some time with them, and it's really cool to hear his stories about I should get them through your podcast. I would love that. So, you know, interestingly enough, I never met Phyllis Diller, but people do love talking about Phyllis Diller. But I did meet once, a few times, a comedian named Jim Wiggins. And I was working with him, and he was an old-timer. I don't know if you know that. Anyway, but he was like one of those touring guys. He was everywhere. He was on, I think, Last Comic Standing at one point. He was old. And we were working together, and he noticed I was looking over the audience. And he's like, Jeff, come here. 
Phil Stiller told me this. So he starts giving me advice from Phil Stiller that she had given him. So it's passed on to me. She's like, look him in the eye. You got to look him in the eye when you're talking to him. Because you you may not get the laugh, but you'll get a laugh. That's what you got to do. And I was like, I was like, oh, all right. And I swear to God, it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if someone gives you this, that one little tidbit and it's like kind of changes you. Right. I have such a funny Phyllis story. And then another story to piggyback on what you just said. So I got invited to a holiday party at Phyllis's house once. And she brought everybody into the foyer and made an announcement and said, don't use this bathroom because the lock's broken from the inside and we'll have to call the fire department, blah, blah, blah. So like an hour later, somebody gets stuck in the bathroom and we have to call the fire department. And it was Phyllis. (laughs) (laughs) That, by the way, I mentioned earlier, like my greatest fear. My second greatest fear would be at someone else's house use the toilet and the toilet stops working. That would be right up there. Yes. Buzz Aldrin was at that party too. Oh. I know. That was surreal. But um, the other thing I was going to say about how Jeff Wiggins had given you the advice that he had heard from Phyllis, I have found that when I stand on stage, the first thing I try to do, because sometimes I forget, because when you get on stage, sometimes you lose your mind and you don't remember what you were thinking to do. But I try to remember to do something called Tonglen, which I think is Buddhist. I'm not really sure. It's a breathing practice that I got from reading Natalie Goldberg's books. She's a writer who writes a lot about writing. And Tonglen is, it's anti, what's the word I'm looking for, Jeff? You don't think it should work, but- Anti-intuitive? Yeah. Counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. (laughs) So you're looking at the audience and you breathe in, you don't take it in, but you try to extract their negativity and all the shitty things that happened that day and their problems with the parking attendant or whatever, all their stress and anxiety, negativity. And you try to breathe out positive energy and who knows if it works, but it seems like it does. That's a good technique. Yeah. A really good technique. I, uh, and talk to the people directly and look at the audience. Well, you know, but, you know, when I would look at them, when I started looking right in the eyes of people, especially like, you know, the obsession you get with like somebody who's maybe not laughing or, you know, like. I don't know. That never happened. <laughs> everyone else. But sometimes it happens to other people, <laughs> Wendy, where there's just one person, right? Or something. But I found like if you stare at them and then they smile, you can get them to at least yeah. smile. Right. Like in my head, I'd think of that as like a video game, like where it goes, bing. You know, what I mean? like a yeah. 20, 25 points. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Like, and then you just move like on to the next crush. person. Yeah, exactly. Then you just move on to the next person. Because once you win them over, you're done. You can move on. Well, one time there was a guy sitting up front and he was like this. He was like in the front row like this. And then after the show, his group came up and said hello. And I was like, oh, you look like you weren't enjoying. He's like, that was, uh, that was the greatest time. <laughs> <laughs> Some people don't laugh. That's like the, like we in our heads, right? You need. You want a very specific type of reaction, but sometimes people, that's not how people process it. I remember it's like, I know. Like, it's such a weird job we have, like that that's our goal. When you watch other comedians, yeah, sometimes you, you can obviously belly laugh, but do you, do you not laugh as much as you would, do you think? Like when you watch someone else, like just because you're processing it a different, on a different level? No, I laugh hysteric. I cackle. Cackle. Yeah. <laughs> 
Where are you performing? I've been doing the podcast more than performing because like during COVID, I kind of missed. And then they were bringing people back and I'm like, mm, I think it's too early. And that was like 2021. So I missed that whole year. And uh, because then they booked up, but then they ended up canceling everything anyway, a month later. I'm at the Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. Have you oh, been? Oh, I love that. Have you been there? Have you played there? I love that room. So great. It's so great. It's there once. Well, why don't we get you back? Okay. It's your task. <laughs> <laughs> we need some Wendy Liebman in Michigan. That's what we need. Well, I have performed in Michigan. Where have you performed? Joey's in Dearborn. Joey's in Dearborn is no longer there. There was Joey's Dearborn. There was Joey's Livonia. I think when I started comedy, there was even a third one. But then by the time I started, that was gone. Yeah, I only did Dearborn. And I had one of my funnest shows of all time. Do tell. At Joey's Dearborn. So it's in the basement of this Italian restaurant. It was really good food, I recall. And there were eight people there on a Sunday. I pretty much just started going on the road. Although I'd had those six years of experience of cutting my teeth on the Boston crowds. So I felt like by the end of the night, we were just doing callbacks then. Because a callback is just an inside joke that you make with the audience. It's like you're writing code to bring back a memory of when you left the first time. Right. And there's also something funny about repeating it. I knew everybody's name. There were eight of us. I think I bought them drinks. And yeah, it was just a bullet. Like, I felt like I was a puck on an air hockey board, just floating. It was really fun. That was one of my favorite shows. That is awesome. And it's it just goes to show you, like, a lot of times people get so obsessed with audience size. And sometimes you can have just as much fun with a real tight, small audience as like a big audience. Hell, a big audience can be a nightmare too. Intimidating. Yeah. Intimidating. The thing I remember about Joey's Dearborn was that it was very, it was wide. So the stage was like in the middle of the room and it didn't, it wasn't deep, but it was very wide. So it was, it went all the way to your left and all the way to your right. I don't know if this is all over the country, but they never knew how to seat people. So if I were there and there were only eight people. There would be two all the way to the left and two right. all the way to the right. And then maybe, to, and so like you never know where to focus because right. people, there's, it's like, cause that's where they want to sit. It's like, no, put them all in the front together. I know. Well, people like to be anonymous because sometimes it's embarrassing to laugh. And right. Right. About, yeah, it's, yes. So the more anonymous you are in the dark in the corner, the easier it is. That is true. That is true as well. I've shared enough of my philosophies with you. Yeah, I'm done. This is just too You're much done? fun. This is too no, much I fun. just then I had so much fun, but I, I feel like I'm being so pedantic and Oh no, I was kidding. I enjoyed every every second okay. of it. Yeah. <laughs> I've waited a million years to talk to you. You're not we got two more hours. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we could do part two. We could do part two. When I find my voice. When you find back. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll circle around. We'll circle around. No, we'll I, circle back. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you spending the, this much time with me. I really do. So much fun. And I'm, I've been looking at your wall behind you. Is that your wall of fame? I have. Uh, uh, I got it kind of like uh, goes all the way around. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm a huge Comic-Con guy. So I like I love going to Comic-Con and, and meeting the celebrities and getting their autographs on the 8x10s. And then my wife finally... This one room in the house is mine. And so it's just all it is is autographs and pictures of me with people. 
Who was the coolest autograph you got? The coolest autograph? Like that gave you the most jolts. I'm going to say Henry Winkler. And the first time I met Henry Winkler, I've met him twice. Once was like at a this Jewish event and then he was speaking and then once at a Comic-Con. And the first time I met him, I've met with and I've talked with lots of people, but for, there was something about all of a sudden the realization that I was standing with the Fonz that I completely shut down. I remember completely shutting down. I couldn't even kind of <laughs> process, process anything. And I think the only other time I ever got real tongue-tied was with when I was working with Dave Coulier. I don't know why Dave Coulier, but I just, I couldn't get a word out. I know. I just, uh, I remember in between shows, I think I was featuring and he says to me, we're behind the Mark Ridley's and he says, he's about to walk on stage. He goes, Jeff, are you going to be here after my show? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, Dave Goulet totally wants to hang out with me. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be here after the show, man. He's like, oh good. Could you make sure that the MC remembers to bring my shirts to <laughs> whatever? And I'm like, yeah, I'll tell the MC to do that for you. <laughs> and I walk away defeated. <laughs> you ought to know. <laughs> I'm a Sparset song. Perfect. Excellent. Right, that's a perfect. Let's end on that. I don't think we okay. can. I don't think we can top that. I know. Uh, so, Wendy, thank you. This is such a delight. Jeff, thank you. Oh, thank you. Tell everyone where they can keep up with you on the social medias. So. I am on Twitter a lot at Wendy Liebman, and I'm just in the process of updating my website, which it's like a whole project. It's like having a baby that I have to, it's like I forgot about her. And now I'm just really making it my own. Check that out, wendyliebman.com. And I'll be opening for Bill Maher in Hawaii over New Year's in Honolulu so with Jeff Ross. Oh, that's awesome. So that's my, I mean, I have gigs here, but yeah, that's the gig everybody, that's my destination gig. That, <laughs> that is, that is awesome. Come to Hawaii. I opened for Jeff Ross once. He was, I, I think of him as he was the most famous person at I worked with where he was at his fame. You know what I mean? Wow. You know what I mean? Like with the roast and everything. Like, like I remember like getting all like, oh, I was all nervous, but I never met a cooler guy than Jeffrey Ross. Oh, you're gonna so have funny. A, you're gonna have a great time. That sounds like a great lineup. Very cool. Wendy, this was amazing. Jeff, all you. right. Keep in touch. <laughs> BFF. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks for slumming on my podcast. <laughs> Bye. Bye. How amazing was Wendy Liebman? Keep those applause going for Wendy Liebman. Yay. Check out her website, wendyliebman.com. Follow her on Twitter. Links in the show notes. I love talking to Wendy. So fun. All right. Well, with the interview over, can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free hashtag Roundup app at the Google Play Store or iTunes App Store. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag Roundup. Tweet along with us and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. This episode's hashtag is hashtag my low bar secret talent brought to us by Fletchy Tags, a weekly game on hashtag roundup secret talents, of course, inspired by Wendy's time on America's Got Talent. 
But these are a special kind of talents. These are low bar. What's the lowest bar talent you think you got to offer the world? That's what Fletchy Tags asked the internet. And that's how Twitter responded with hashtag my low bar secret talent. Tweet your own. Tag us at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter. We'll show you some Twitter love. In the meantime, here's some hashtag my low bar secret talent tweets. You can judge for yourself. Mad Cat's low bar secret talent is pretending everything is going exactly as planned. That's how I meant everything to go. I hear ya, Mad Cat. PJ's low bar secret talent is ear wiggling. Always good for a giggle. Dan plays a mean kazoo. These are some hashtag my low bar secret talents. I salute all of you. Sam's bringing to the table, making a list for shopping, and then not using it at the grocery store. Just winging it. Low bar rebel. Carmen can sleep with both her eyes closed. Challenge accepted. Nerd 2.0's hashtag my low bar secret talent is taking the last slice of pizza. Bad box marks, low bar secret talent, keeping its beard relatively food free. Elizabeth K is rocking the eye roll. These are some amazing hashtag my low bar secret talent tweets. Justin's talent is making the coffee disappear. Vinyl fan Jan can pick up small items off the floor with her toes. Jealous about that. Victor is constantly over and underestimating himself, thus putting himself right in the middle. That is a hell of a low bar secret talent. Jake can pretty much always not cuss in churches or funerals. Way to keep it strong, Jake. Dan Only Zool has mastered the Irish exit at a party. And our final hashtag my low bar secret talent, Fletchy, who's exceptional at napping. All right. Oh, these low bar secret talents. Uh, you know, hope you don't bump into any of them. Yeah. How you gonna ra- how you gonna rank? Anywho, well, with the hashtag over and the interview over. It can only mean one thing. That's right. Episode 176 has come to a close. I want to thank my very special guest, Wendy Liebman, for joining me. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.